morning. It's a joy to be with you as it is each Lord's Day when we gather to worship. If you have your copy of God's Word, open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse number 12. If you have one of our cart Bibles, you can find that on page 554. Now, if you were here with us last week, uh, we studied together the, the vanity of indulgence, the vanity of seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake. And you may recall that Pastor Kerr uh, reminded us that, that those pursuits, they are uh, terribly temporary and sinfully selfish. And so after that consideration and that uh, perhaps thought exercise, we could even call it, uh, Solomon, our preacher in Ecclesiastes, turns to look in a different way at, at his life and look again at wisdom. So before we study uh, together, won't you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the chance together, the chance to study your word together. Would you open it to our hearts that we might understand? Help us to see more of you, to see more of Christ in all that we study. Father, bless our time together this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here now from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man, uh, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. Now there is uh, an old movie, uh, 20 years, 25 years ago or so, I think, uh, called Meet Joe Black. 
It stars Anthony Hopkins and Brad Pitt, a very much younger Brad Pitt. It's based off an Italian uh, drama called Death Takes a Holiday. The premise is that, that Death, the character, the figure of Death, has gotten a little bored with his job, and so he wants a vacation. Uh, it is Anthony Hopkins, uh, it's his time to die, and so he makes a deal. He says, you keep me entertained, you show me around, you let me kind of shadow your life a little bit and see what life is like, and you get more time. So Brad Pitt plays this uh, death character nicknamed Joe Black, because that's the only thing they can come up with in the moment, to name death is Joe Black. So Brad Pitt follows Anthony Hopkins around for a while, and he tries all sorts of food and different experiences, and death even manages to find a girlfriend in this somehow, some way. But Anthony Hopkins is the CEO of a large corporation. They're considering a merger, so as Joe Black is sitting in on this board meeting and they're talking about this merger that's about to happen, uh, one of the board members says, this merger is as certain as death and taxes. And Joe Black kind of perks up at that and he says, death and taxes? <laughs> and the guy confirms this, he kind of asks him again, he's like, death and taxes? What an odd pairing. And, and this, uh, this story, this scene in this movie, uh, it, it highlights what we already know about death. We've all heard the phrase, certain is death in taxes, right? We all know that this is true. And given what we know about Christ and how he was raised from the dead, how he raised others from the dead, and, and when he comes back, there will be another resurrection. I might actually argue taxes are far more certain than death. But... But death comes to us all, doesn't it? That is the certainty. Uh, and it's this fact that is almost the guiding principle of our passage this morning. Uh, it's what Solomon is wrestling with. He's wrestling with, with death and the effect that that has on, on life and on all of his work and all of his toil. So that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to begin with the certainty of death. We're going to look at how it informs Solomon's search for wisdom, his search for significance, and a search for, for really the ultimate meaning in life. But in that, that contemplation of death, we also see a certainty about life. And then as it moves on to the last few verses in our passage, we'll see a certainty that's from the Lord. That's our outline this morning. The certainty of death, certainty in life, and certainty of our Lord. So our passage begins this morning as Solomon moves on from his pursuit of pleasure, his pursuit of wealth, and he has, he's really, he has tried everything. He has contemplated all of the hedonistic desires and found that all of them are vanity. They're all striving after wind. So he turns again as, as we begin in verse 12 uh, to contemplate wisdom and madness and folly. No, all the pleasures of the world could not satisfy him. All the company of the countless women that he was with, all the money that he had, all the gardens that he built, all the palaces that he lived in, he could not bring him the significance he was searching for. So he turns again to look at wisdom. And after he, he begins to seek this out and to con contemplate uh, wisdom, he realized that all of those things that I've, I've striven for, all of those things that I've sought uh, to gain in, in what we studied last week, uh, he realizes that no one could surpass that. Certainly no one here among us has the means that we could try anything more than Solomon did. Remember last week he said, 
whatever my eyes saw, I denied them nothing. He's tried it all, and so what can one do who comes after him? Nothing. They can only follow Solomon. They can only follow his pursuit of pleasure. What can one do who comes after the king who's done everything? Only what's been done before. And this is verse 13, where this is from. We can only attempt, right? We can't do what Solomon has done. We can only try as he might. And so the same thing for his heir, for his son, or or whoever is following after him. So the preacher comes back to one idea. Verse 14, he comes back to the idea that uh, this is really a positive note. Out of this section of 12 to 17, this one positive note he comes back to. Verse 14, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. And I want to park here for just a moment. I want to hang on to this idea. Because uh, some of your translations for that word hevel that we've talked about, right? We've, we've mentioned that a couple of times. The word hevel, some of it's translated meaningless. And many of the commentators that I read keep using meaningless in place of this word hevel. And certainly the word does have uh, the connotation of meaningless. But uh, really it's the idea of a breath, of a vapor, of, of smoke. You can't hold on to it. You can't hang on to it. It's, it's temporary. It's... Um, it's as fleeting as, as vanity as looking in the mirror and realizing, hey, I look pretty good. But you won't look that way forever. It's all temporary, right? And so it's not completely devoid of meaning. It's not meaningless to its fullest extent. Because there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There is some meaning there. It is better to be wise than to be a fool. And we'll talk a little bit more about this meaninglessness and and the empty as we get towards the end of our passage. But I wanted to park here because this is the positive note here in this section, that there is more wisdom than, uh, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And you all have seen this to be true. Solomon has seen this to be true. Uh, I had to learn that lesson the hard way, and I'm sure many of us did too. Uh, It was 12 years ago, 14 years ago, something like that. I don't even remember when. I was trying to sell something online for the first time. Uh, And I I had it listed, and someone contacted me and said, hey, I'd like to buy that. Here's my address. And hey, I've paid you on PayPal. Here it is. And they sent me screenshots of the money being transferred. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good. But something just felt off, right? And so I I went and talked to a a friend of mine who had sold and bought a lot of things online at that point. he said, no, that's a pretty common scam. He hasn't actually sent you the money. He's just Photoshopped a picture of a PayPal account and put your stuff in there. And they, they'd like to target first-time sellers because you don't know how this all works, right? And I was grateful for his wisdom and his input because if I'd sent that, I would have been a fool. I would have lost. I wouldn't have gained anything, right? And we all know this is true. There is more gain in wisdom than in folly, And so the verse continues, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. If you're walking in darkness, as as the analogy in scripture goes, if you're walking in darkness, you can't go fast. If you do, you'll trip. And even if it's your own home and you know your way around, you know exactly where everything was and before you went to bed and turned off all the lights, um, if you put everything away and made sure the path was clear, 
what do you still do? You still walk pretty slowly, don't you? That's what happens. There's more gain in wisdom than in folly. And yet, the wise and the fool alike, there's one thing that happens to everyone. Verse 14 at the end, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. This is death. Death is always upon us. It's always around us. Perhaps it's in the back of our minds, hanging around like a raven, rapping as if tapping at your chamber door. Death is always around us. And I don't want to speak of death lightly because it's a heavy thing. It is a difficult thing. If you have not yet felt the sting of death of someone close to you, you will. Those of us that, that have, uh, have lost someone that we love, lost someone that we care about, it is a, it's a hard thing. So I don't want to skate over this lightly because I know that many of us uh, miss many. We miss many people. Death is a heavy thing. But I don't say this to frighten you. I don't say this uh, to make a mockery of death. I say this because this is what Scripture tells us right here, that death comes to us all, and that's the certainty of it, that death is certain for all of us. And Scripture doesn't say that either to frighten us, but it's here to point us to reality because the certainty of death, it changes how we live, doesn't it? Knowing that death is a possibility, it changes how we live. And here's uh, what I mean, all right? How many of you have a cell phone? Most of you, right, all have a phone. And how many of you, uh, when a friend or a loved one leaves and they're going back home after spending some time together, you say, hey, shoot me a text, give me a call, let me know you got there. Why do we do this? Because we know that driving is dangerous. We know that death is a possibility, and we want each other to be safe. Right? We want to know that that thing that we don't want to say, that we don't want to talk about, we want to know that that hasn't happened. Now, we know that death could happen in, in many different ways. We take precautions to avoid it, and I'm not saying don't take precautions. Quite the opposite. Take those precautions. But we don't need to fear death. If you belong to the Lord, there's no reason to fear. The apostle tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the believer, death is not something to be afraid of. It's knowing that we will be with Christ and will be present with him, and that's a great joy. So what does all of this contemplation, all of this thought about death, what does it all do to Solomon? It doesn't lead him to this joy. Quite the opposite, right? He hates life. He wonders, why, if everyone dies, why have I been so wise? Why has he worked so hard when his life can only end in death the same way that it ends for everyone? The same thing that happens to the fool will also happen to him who is so wise. All his striving, all his pleasures, all the wealth that he's accumulated, it can't stop him from dying. It cannot change what will inevitably happen so when he says, I hate life, he's not saying, I hate my life. The circumstances of my life are so bad I can't stand it. That's not what's going on here. Rather quite the opposite. The circumstances of his life are quite, I don't even know how to say, opulent, right? He's had more money at that time than anyone has ever had. He had it all. He's tried everything. The circumstances of his life are not 
bad. No, he's saying he hates the concept of life itself. How depressing is that, right? How de- I mean, how depressing can it be that you come to hate the concept of life itself? That is the nature of a life lived under the sun and only under the sun, isn't it? But now we'll turn to examine some of the certainty of life. Seeing that the certainty of death is that it happens to us all. So all the preachers searching for wisdom, all of Solomon's uh, contemplating folly and madness, has led him to this hatred of life itself. And, and why is this? Because all that's done under the sun, as our text says, is grievous to him. It grieves him to see all of this. So as death is looming over Solomon, as he's contemplating all of this, he returns again to think of of life and to think really on his work and and his life's work. It's the same question that we saw in chapter 1, verse 3. It's one of the, the central questions in all of Ecclesiastes. What can a man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? So his hatred of life, his contemplation of death has returned his thought to this central question. He hates his life. He hates his toil. Verse 18, seeing that I must leave it to one who comes after me and who knows whether he will be wise or be a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. What's Solomon upset about? He's upset that everything he's worked for goes to someone else. Someone will inherit it, someone will claim it, someone will take it. And there's something natural about that desire, isn't there? Something that you've worked for, you know. The scriptures tell us that the laborers deserve their wages, right? How ridiculous would it be if you went into work one day to get your paycheck and they say, actually, you know, we're going to give it to someone else. You don't need it. You've got enough. You're not going to use this. Uh, it goes to someone else. Uh, did anyone else just kind of bristle up at that thought? Of course that's ridiculous. No. You don't want what is yours to be given to someone else. But to be fair, I've painted a bit of a, of a false dilemma in that one. Because you're still alive in that situation. What Solomon is saying is that after I die, after I'm gone, all of the things that I've worked for, all of my money, all of my possessions, all of my land, will go to someone else who did not work for it. Solomon's dead in this scenario. He has no use for it. He has no need for it. Do you hear the selfishness in that? Even in his death, he is still so concerned about his things and who they belong to. See, that pursuit of pleasure, as we heard, it's sinfully selfish, isn't it? We see that working itself out, even in Solomon's contemplation of death. But the certainty of life is that all of that we do, all that we have, ultimately will not belong to us. No matter how much we have or how much we gain, it doesn't belong to us. One way or another, it won't be ours forever. Solomon's selfish desire isn't uh, that he can use all of his wealth to help people, to build things that would improve uh, the country, or to treat people as image bearers. No, he's concerned with all of these things for himself. All of the, the hevel that he's accumulated will go to someone else. So how do we, 
how do we make sense of what Solomon's saying here? Do we stop giving gifts to people? No, that's not the answer. Should we, uh, before our death, should we give everything away uh, to everyone else and leave nothing for our children or, or for our family behind? That's not what he's saying either. He's, contem he's contemplating the work that's done under the sun. He doesn't have an eternal view. He has a selfish view here. This is one of those passages, this is one of those situations where Solomon has taken onto himself the view of the world. He's not speaking in God's wisdom here. He's speaking in the wisdom of the world. And ultimately, we can, we can try, right? We can try to direct where our money will go and who will give our land, but when we're dead, it's still not ours, right? So the certainty of life that Solomon points out is that it's not ours. It wasn't ours first, and it won't be ours after. So where does this leave Solomon? It leaves him in despair, Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. See, Solomon hates the idea of life. His heart has been given over to despair and even his work now is a vexation. The word vexation in Hebrew, it's, it's grief and it's anger. He's angry and he's sad about all of it. He despairs over all of the work that he's done and it, it leads him to depression. And I don't use the word depression lightly, but this is what, this pattern of, of pursuing all that Solomon's pursued, this is what it does, right? I have a little bit more money and that felt good. So I'll try to get a little bit more, but it doesn't feel as good the next time around. So you have to keep trying. Well, money's not doing it anymore, so I'll uh, try relationships and I'll try sex. And you try it more and more and it doesn't feel as good in meaningless ways time and time again. And so you create this pattern that really starts to look like addiction. Needing more and more to feel the same way. Solomon is in a deep depression here. He's hating life, he's despairing over the fact that he will die like the fool he spent his life pursuing pleasure simply for pleasure's sake. That's what happens when we do this. It leads us straight into depression. He tried to find ultimate meaning in all of this. He tried to find ultimate meaning in his own wisdom, but it failed. It all failed. Solomon just seems without hope here, doesn't he? Without hope, in despair, in depression, where does Solomon find himself? Well, right back where he began, eating and drinking and finding merriment. So we've seen the certainty of death. We've seen the certainty of life, and that all we have will be given to someone else. And the certainty of life is that it will, and it is someone else's. And if we live for a purpose that's only under the sun, only in this life, we'll find ourselves in the same spot. What, uh, what hope is there, right? That's the question. So Solomon turns to what he knows. He turns to what he knows for comfort. Pay attention here in the last few verses because there's a bit of a shift. It's in the last three verses that we see the certainty of the Lord. Verse 24, 
There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Does this idea sound strange to anyone? It struck me as strange uh, as I was studying this week, as I was meditating this week on this passage, because this, uh, this doesn't sound like Solomon's advocating that this is a gift from God. This sounds like more of his indulgence, more of his vanity, more of his uh, just seeking something to make him feel good. So as I studied, I, I wanted to see if this idea was other places in Scripture, and it shows up a few times. Uh, in Isaiah is one of the main passages where it shows up. Isaiah 22 says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord, the God of hosts. So let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is a characteristic, this is a trait of those who practice iniquity, not of those who follow the Lord. Didn't help me much. Well, that Isaiah 22 passage is quoted in 1 Corinthians. It's, it's quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, that, that great and wonderful passage, the, the defense of the necessity of, of the resurrection. So this is from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's the quote. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. What 1 Corinthians is telling us is that if the dead are not raised, then yeah, we ought to go on and eat and drink and be merry, because that's all there is, isn't there? Again, this is a characteristic not of the godly, but of the ungodly. But nowhere in Scripture, no other place, is this verse, is our verse, verse 24, verse 25, Nowhere is this verse, are these verses quoted in Scripture. That's what Solomon does in verse 25. He doubles down on this idea, right? He says, for apart from him, who is God, apart from him, who can eat or who can find enjoyment? So how do we reconcile these ideas? We have to come back to this idea of under the sun. Under the sun, without that eternal view, without a view for God and, and the concerns of the Lord. We cannot have that sort of limited under the sun view of the things of this world. Because there is another world to come, isn't there? So for the nihilist, for, for the atheist who uh, believes that there is nothing after death, there is no life after death. So for the nihilist, eat and drink and be merry because that's all there is. But for the believer, eat and drink and be merry because that's what there is. It's not all that there is, but there's, that's what God has given to us. That's not all. There's more to come. But for now, while we're still here, enjoy God's good gifts to you because he does give us good gifts. Eat and enjoy it. As Truett Cathy, the founder of my favorite fast food chain, Chick-fil-A, uh, as Truett Cathy says, food is necessary for life, therefore make it good. So eat and enjoy it. Don't be gluttonous. Drink. Don't be drunk. Enjoy sex in the bounds of a godly marriage. 
That is one of his great gifts to us. Plant gardens. Build things. Go for a drive. Enjoy the sunset. Paint a picture. Read a book. Sit and look at the grass. Whatever you enjoy doing, right? Because these are good gifts from God. So enjoy them. Whatever you find yourself doing, do it to glorify him. Do it so that when others look at you and ask what you're doing and why you're doing it, you can say, it's a gift from God. And by watching you and seeing how you enjoy his gifts, they might come to know him. They might come to know Christ. So thank him for the gifts as well. Praise him, glorify him, thank him for the gifts that he's given you. So know this then. Know that the certainty of the Lord is that he gives us good gifts. And the best gift of all you know is Christ. It's Christ's death and burial and resurrection that through him we might be reconciled to the Father, our sins forgiven. What a great gift. Christ is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. It's through him that we can know God. By knowing him, we can know God, and that is the great gift. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is as clear as it could be. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It doesn't get much more certain than that, right? So this last verse remains. There's this shift where Solomon seems to understand that good gifts are from the Lord, but this last verse is a bit of a shift. Verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. See, there's more gain and wisdom than in folly, right? And if wisdom is God's gift, then Solomon understands that the one who's wise uh, is wise from God. There are a lot of other things, a lot of other disagreements about that verse, but the plain truth is that God gives good gifts to his people. And he's not a stingy God. He is a generous God who gave up his son. What could be more generous than that? The certainty of death is that it's coming. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear it for the sake of Christ. And the certainty of life is that it's not ours. It has been bought with a purchase by Christ. And what God has redeemed can't be taken from him. And that is the great certainty of our Lord. Remember God's good gifts to you. Most of all, remember Christ, that great gift. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have showered your blessings upon us. You have given us more than we could ever consider. So much of it goes unnoticed by us. So thank you for being generous. Thank you for being the God who really cares. That though we sinned and death entered the world, that we don't have to despair. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.